The author's still talking about angels. He's going to pick up that theme again here in a little bit, but he introduces into his discussion on angels and Jesus' relationship to angels, he introduces a warning. The book of Hebrews has got a number of of warnings uh, that are sprinkled throughout it. In some ways, it's a heavy book for that reason. And this is the first of several warnings that the author is going to give us. And we just need to preach it. This isn't exactly a baby dedication sermon. Uh, our philosophy here is, is, is this, that on Sunday morning, what we're mainly doing is leading the army of God in a triumphal uh, course of praise and worshiping our captain. And then uh, I'm, I'm commissioned to give a charge, to give a challenge um, that will motivate us to go out and do army work. So we can't be afraid of confrontation. Cannot. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, that's, that's, that's great. Um, our prayer is that before you leave here, you will be. In fact, I'm confident you will be. How's that? Um, just uh, the Lord's moving. And um, so I'm giving a charge and a challenge to Christians, and I'm going to be giving a charge and a challenge to non-Christians for you to join the army and to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hebrews chapter 2 says this, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, therefore, in the light of everything I just said about the superiority of Jesus Christ to the angels, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, to the gospel. Why? So that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, he's talking there about the law, The law was given through the mediation of angels, Paul tells us in Galatians 3. Um, If that was binding, and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Pay close attention that you do not drift. And how shall we escape if we don't pay attention, if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Lord, we just give you all the praise and the glory and the honor and the adoration for what you've done in the lives of every believer here this morning and for the way you are present in the worship service. Lord, you've chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and one of the foolish things you've chosen is to do kingdom work by the silliness of speaking. So, Lord God, I just recognize that everything I'm going to say here is on just a human level, silly, and it has no power. But we ask, God, that your spirit would come down and infuse each each syllable to make it your word and to give it kingdom authority to transform our lives, to fire up the army of God. And for those who are here who don't know you, Lord, my prayer is that This would grab them, and you would grab them through what is said and bring them into the kingdom and save them and change their eternal destinies here this morning. Give me the boldness to say as straight as possible what needs to be said and the grace to say it gracefully. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Some of you who uh, who are a little bit familiar with biology and physics and chemistry and those kind of things have probably heard about what's called the second law of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics is that physical law that says this. All physical processes tend towards randomness. That is to say, 
they tend towards disorder. All physical processes tend to run down. Energy tends to be lost. Systems do not wind themselves up, they wind themselves down. Unless there is work, unless there is energy to do otherwise, things tend towards death. They tend to, to, they tend to find their simplest possible state, which is a state of randomness, disorder. In other words, if you turn 35 and you don't exercise, your body is going to start to show it. That's the physical application of it. Unless you do something to, in fact, even if you do something to, to, to stay it off, you're going to lose anyways, but it buys you more time. But your body tends to decay. Your teeth tend to decay. Your hair tends to grow thinner. I was out with some friends of mine, Cheryl Jess, for example, and the other day, and, and she just mentioned, Craig, you're really thinning on top. How many times have I heard that this last year? They said, well, yes, when you put on a pound or two, haven't you? <laughs> Mutual encouragement society. Well, that's what happens. And now my son's telling me I need to go to that hair loss for men clinic. You know, I'm like, yeah, you should try that. Gosh, I don't think it's that bad. Your body tends to wind down. All of a sudden, you know, you, 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 the, the gut starts to get loose and... and the body tends towards decay. That's the happy thought. Everything is tending towards death. Everything's running down. Everything's tending towards disorder. There's a constant pull downward. Even our earth. Our earth is wearing out. The sun is wearing out. The solar system's wearing out. Eventually the whole galaxy will wear out. Eventually the whole universe will wear out. And if Jesus didn't come back, it'd turn into a big hole and go back into itself again. And that's the happy thought for the day. <laughs> Second law of thermodynamics. That's what life is in a fallen world. It's the law, it's the law of physics. Now here's the thing. The author is telling us here that there is a spiritual application of that law. What is true in a fallen universe on a physical level is also true in a fallen universe on a spiritual level. And the law very simply is this. Ain't no coasting allowed. If you're sitting on the couch watching TV and eating potato chips, you are not going to wake up one morning and just be a wonderful physical specimen. Doing nothing will contribute to your demise, but it certainly won't contribute to your getting physically fit. If you want that to happen, you have to, in some sense, go against nature and work out and pump some iron and go for a run. So also, if you're a spiritual couch potato, if you're sitting around here just watching the sermon and watching the worship and watching other people do devotions, you're not going to be getting spiritually fit. You're not going to be spiritually growing. You're not going to be getting spiritually in shape. In fact, the Word is saying you're going to be drifting. You're going to be decaying. There's a downward pull on us in this fallen world that tends to bring us to a lower spiritual state. If you try to coast, if you become a spiritual couch potato, you tend downward. You don't grow naturally. Growing takes work. Growing takes effort. Growing takes discipline. Growing takes intentionality. It's the fallen law of this universe, backed up with some demonic power, that if you're trying to just get by... If you're trying to just do church, if you're trying to just coast by on a minimum, there's a power that's tearing you down. The word that the author uses is to drift. If you don't pay close attention to it, you drift. The word drift there, it has the connotation of wandering by negligence. You're not trying to drift. You're not trying to get spiritually out of shape. But you do it simply by not trying to do anything else. Something that drifts, it's you throw a little stick in the water and you, and you watch it. Now, it doesn't just shoot out to sea. 
It just gradually goes out there. It flows in, it flows out. It flows in, it flows out. But each time it flows out, it flows a little farther than it flew in. And so it is in the spiritual walk. You had a good day, you feel on fire. But the question is, overall, where are you tending? Where are you going spiritually? Are you growing or are you decaying? And unfortunately, in this fallen world that we live in, there isn't a lot of middle ground there. You're going in one of two directions. Are you drifting? Are you drifting? And the author is saying, wake up, you Hebrew Christians. He's writing to in the book of Hebrews. Wake up. Pay attention. Start taking inventory. Start doing some honest self-analysis. Are you drifting? Are you wandering? Where are you spiritually? There's two ways that I think we can really tend to drift. One way is that we can drift in terms of our spiritual disposition. We can drift in terms of our passion. You don't wake up one morning and all of a sudden declare yourself to be an atheist and decide to go out and live an immoral life. I don't know anyone who's ever done that. Was a vibrant Christian, on fire for God, woke up one morning and just says, bah, it's more fun to go out and let's just be heathens and, and live it up. No one does that. What happens is that you drift. You flow in, you flow out, you flow in, you flow out, but you flow out a little farther than you flew in. And gradually you drift. Gradually you drift away from the shore that you were to be clinging to. You once were on fire for God. You once had a dynamic prayer life. You once really got into the Word of God. You used to read that thing and God would talk to you and it came alive. You once used to look forward to that prayer time. You used to love hanging around with Christians. You used to love fiery prayer meetings. You used to come to church with a sense of expectation and really get into worship. And there was a reality there. And there was a passion there. And there was a dynamism there. And you were walking in the Spirit. And now you're doing all those things on the external, but on the internal, in the spiritual, there is nothing there. Or at least, it's just a smoldering little amber of what used to be a roaring fire. And maybe no one that looks at you can ever tell the difference because you haven't drifted externally. You still maybe do some of the devotion. You still go to the church. You still go through the motions. But you know on the inside if you wake up. And that's what the author is saying here this morning. Pay close attention. Do an inventory. Because it's possible to drift out to sea and to never even notice it. It happens by little tiny baby steps. Little tiny increments. You backslide, we used to call it. You get cold. You get cool. You, get, you change your relationship into a religion. You change Christ in for churchianity, and now you're going through the motions, and the passion is gone, the reality is gone. You've slipped because you weren't paying attention. You weren't there, you weren't diligent, you weren't disciplined about the spiritual walk. And the author is saying, wake up to this, wake up to this. You become sort of like a member of the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation where the Lord says this, you're lukewarm. Oh no, you haven't gone out, you're not cold. But don't take any consolation in that fact. You've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. You've lost that first passion. You've lost that reality. And what God would have us to do here this morning, believer, is this. To look at ourselves and to ask the question honestly, where are we with God? Where have we been tending with God? Are we growing in the Lord? Are we doing what that new song we learned this morning talks about? Getting deeper with Him. Getting more passionate with Him. Or in fact, are we just coasting? Are we just cold? Are we in fact lukewarm? Have we, lost, have we lost that first love? Think back at the time when you were most on fire for God. Try to remember that. Make that a benchmark. And then ask yourself the question, what happened? Not to shame yourself, but for the Lord to say, come on, let's rekindle that first love. One of the sad things is that, as I said, you can go into this 
spiritually dead state and not even know it. In fact, there's a natural pull to do that. I find myself continually needing a revival because of this spiritual second law of thermodynamics. I continually need to have a time, almost on a weekly basis, where I like, come on, get back to it. I turn into secular Greg. Does this ever happen to you? You all of a sudden realize that the last three days, you've been totally secular. God could have died, and you never would have noticed it. Your life is just it's carnal. You're not bad or immoral or anything. But it's just that there, you have not been surrendered on a moment-by-moment basis to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But you don't even notice that. What's really sad is that in some circles... That growing out of passion, that growing out of enthusiasm, that growing out of zeal is called maturing in the Lord. And they look upon people who really get kind of excited and all, you know, bubbly and they they just praise God with all their heart and all their mind. They actually go out and witness and they actually do some of the stuff that the Bible says and they actually respond to the Spirit moving in their life and, and do radical things. They look upon them as kind of being these immature, emotional types. But see, now, now we've grown, and uh, we, oh, we used to be like that when we were first Christians, but now we've become sophisticated, and, and, and we're stayed and solid. We're there every Sunday, all right? Now we never get too excited about things, but we're there. And, uh, and I, I, I have had people say that they think that, that uh, any church that gets too hot and bothered about things is an immature church. That strikes me like taking some kind of dead marriage that lost all passion, and they just sit around and tolerate one another, and making that the ideal for what a marriage should be like. I don't believe that growing cold with Jesus is maturing. Um, I don't think there's anything sophisticated about the fact that you can't get excited about the Lord. In fact, I think the problem there is that you're not sophisticated enough, because you're not sophisticated enough to see that this reality is worth getting excited about. Amen? Amen. And the one thing about Jesus I know for sure is this. I don't always walk on a super high, pumped up, turbocharged, spiritual plane. I wish I did, but I don't. But I do know that when I'm walking with the Lord and when I'm tasting the Lord and when there's a reality there and when I'm sold out and when I'm investing so that I'm not in a state of decay, the Lord is never old. The Lord never, never becomes habitual. The Bible says that His mercies are new every morning. The thing that's great about Jesus is that every time you have love, every time you're there, every time you're in fellowship, it's new and never grows old. And the, the, the Lord can get sweeter and sweeter every day. In fact, I think if we're walking with Him, that's what we find. Amen. The love grows more and more passionate. It gets deeper and deeper. It doesn't need to go on this coast, slow, static, decaying, simply external churchianity kind of a thing. That's why I don't believe heaven will ever, ever, ever get boring. When you're in the presence of God, you, you know that this is the one thing in life that you can never, ever get tired of. Ever get tired of. Throughout eternity, after four trillion zillion years, it will be as new as the, as, as, as the first time that you've ever experienced Him. His presence is there. We can drift emotionally. We can drift spiritually. We can also drift doctrinally in terms of our beliefs. And this is really what the author is getting at in Hebrews 2. The Hebrew Christians, you know, were, were, uh, um, they were starting to drift back into their old Judaism. They wanted to just tinker a little bit with their, what's called Christology, with their views of Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus as an angel. It would have been a lot more convenient. And they were beginning to backslide in terms of their belief system. And the author of Hebrews confronts them in a very serious way here. Do not drift. Pay attention to what you've been taught, lest you drift. There is something that sociologists call... Social Cognitive Dissonance. I was just reading a book this uh, last several weeks by Peter Berger, a famous sociologist, 
called uh, A Rumor of Angels. Very good book. And he says this, there is a natural inclination on the part of people who hold a minority opinion in any people group to compromise their beliefs to become more like the majority. Another unfancy word for it is peer pressure. Cognitive dissonance, it causes pain to us because we're social creatures. It's not easy to live out of sync with the culture around you. So there's constant pressure put on us to conform. But it doesn't happen overnight, it happens through increments. That's why we need to always be careful about what we're thinking, about what we're believing, about what's happening to us. I used to think that I was invincible to peer pressure, that I was the last person on the, earth, on the world to ever be influenced by what the group thought. In fact, those who know me well will tell you that I tend to like being different in a crowd. I, I, I like to confront people. I enjoy ticking groups of people off. It's, it's one of my gifts. Um, <laughs> And so when I went to school, I intentionally went to very liberal schools. Uh, God opened up the door. I think it was God opened up the door. Uh, they gave me a scholarship, and I went. But here I am, a conservative evangelical Christian who believes the Bible is inerrant, going to these very liberal schools. But I thought, great, because I can take them on. I love doing this. I learn best when I'm in a fight. But I was expecting some mean professor to come up there and say, how can you believe the Bible is God's word? Or some theory that I had never heard of, or some fact that was, you know, uh, that I hadn't been aware of, some archaeological fact or some proof, some argument that would just come against me and try to prove that my beliefs were wrong. And I was ready for that. I had my boxing glove on. I was like, come on, where are you? And it never happened. There was never any secret fact that I didn't know about, some theory that just proved that, that my beliefs were wrong or some mean professor that was in my face. That never happened. But it did happen to me, in fact, more than once in the course of my graduate studies where I would all of a sudden realize that I thought that my old beliefs were kind of silly. No proof of it, no evidence for it, no argument for it, it just happened. How could anyone with a brain really believe that Elijah made an axe head float? How could anyone read the stories of Samson in the Bible and think that there was any truth to them? God fled the whole world and all the animals got involved in an ark. Come on, it's just, I can't believe that anymore. God parted the Red Sea, yeah, right. And all of a sudden it seemed silly to me and I didn't know why, I didn't have any proof of it. There's no big argument for it. It just happened. I needed someone to come along and kind of like grab my jaw and say, what's going on here? Because, you see, I was in an environment where the assumptions, the presuppositions, the attitudes, the beliefs of all those around me, even while I was on my guard looking for them, they infiltrated into my mind. They, they, they crept in. Subtle assumptions creep in if you're not very careful. And, and it happens so slowly, like the old proverbial frog boiling in the water. They say, I never tried this. I want, I want to do it sometime just to find out if it's true. But my son catches enough frogs, so i got plenty to spare. But you can boil a frog, I'm told, if you do it slow enough, because it, it, its, blood, it, its temperature changes with the water. Well, so it is with us. The Bible says this, Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a pattern of this world. There are belief systems in this world. There are assumptions in this world. There are presuppositions in this world. We live in a polluted environment. And if we are not careful, that pollution goes into our ears, goes into our eyes, goes into our soul and our gut. And gradually, ever so slowly, we begin to change our beliefs. It affects us in terms of our spiritual passion, but it also affects us in terms of what we believe. And the church, to a large degree in America today, is at drift. You've got believers who are seeking fortune tellers and seeking psychics and, 
and, and consulting all sorts of ungodly stuff that is prohibited in Scripture, not realizing the radical incompatibility that is there. Believers trying to mesh together all sorts of things, trying to make the Word of God into a hodgepodge of a bunch of different religions and mesh the whole thing together, but it happens slowly. And the Bible here, the author of the book of Hebrews there is saying this, pay close attention to what you've heard. Pay close attention to the Word of God, that you're not slowly shifted, that you're not slowly boiled in water, that you don't change from the course the Word of God originally set you on. What we need here is this, I'll say two things. One, we need to keep our nose in the Word of God and let God keep on saturating us with His Word. So we, we, we absorb, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Word of God has the time to just cultivate itself deeply into our minds so that our worldview is the Bible's worldview. We need to have times where we come together and hear the Word proclaimed. That's why the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. To hear that, to be together, to worship God together. And we also need Christians around us who love us enough to speak truth to us. Amen. We need this. I am blind to areas of my life, either in terms of my spiritual fervor or in terms of the things that I'm believing. And I can't see. It's happening to me, so I can't always step outside and see myself. But we need believers that are there to say, Greg, Greg, Greg wait a minute. Something in the last year has changed here. You used to really get into this stuff. What's happened here? People who care enough to confront, not out of judgmentalism, but out of love. They just say, you know what, I love you so much that I need to ask you this question. And God uses us. This is how the body of Christ gets woven together and molded together. And we stay on track. We help each other sometimes by confronting one another. You need to surround yourself with believers. A house church, a fellowship of Christians you share life with. Now the author goes on to warn us about something. He says... If the message that was given in the Old Testament had severe consequences attached to it if people neglected it, how much more the truth that we have been given here? The idea here is this. That message in the Old Testament was given through the mediation of angels. And it had severe consequences if someone neglected it. But the message that we have received, the author says, is given to us by the Son of God Almighty. The ante has been upped, he's saying. How shall we escape... If we neglect so great a salvation, the author is saying. Heavy warning here. This is serious stuff he's saying. It's kind of like this. Think of it this way. If God had to do more than just send an angel to save us, if God himself, if everything the author of Hebrews has just said about Jesus Christ in the first chapter is true, God himself became a man. God himself took upon himself our sin. God himself took upon himself our punishment. God himself suffered a God-forsaking death on the cross in order to save us. If God himself had to go to that radical extreme to save us, we must have been in very serious shape. The fact that God went to such a radical extreme to save us shows us that we were in such a radically bad position. We don't feel that way, of course. We think things are just doing great, which is just further evidence that we are in radically bad shape, so bad that we don't even recognize it. And the author is saying this. If you neglect such a great salvation, then everything that he came to save you from is still on you. And how do you think you're going to escape the consequences of this? There's always consequences. Cling to Jesus Christ. He's saying, lay hold of Jesus Christ and do not let go. Pay close attention to what you have heard and cling to it with all your might. Because the ante is very high. There's a part of human nature that always thinks it can escape consequences. 
There's a part of human nature that's, that's like this. We, we want to run from the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we believers have this too, so we can't pretend like we don't have it. There's a part of us that wants to run from the lordship of Jesus Christ and make ourselves lord of our own life. And part of that is being able to define what is real. To define for ourselves what is true. Whenever someone says, well, you see in the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve, the Lord says, here's the consequences. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. I set up the system. I know it pretty well. If you eat of this tree, you're going to die. First lie of the enemy and the first lie that human beings believe is, no, that, that won't happen. No, in fact, I'll become wise. That, that, that's what will happen. He's wrong about that. And we try to outrun reality. We try to escape the consequences of our actions. You see people doing it all the time. Sometimes it's called denial. Denial. What we wish were true. What we wish were true, we believe to be true because we wish it were true. People do it all the time. Sometimes, sometimes it's about maybe who they are um, or about what they can do. Um, everyone around them knows that they're really this way, but they insist on believing that they're a certain way. Our, our house church, our small group, went out to a, uh, a restaurant, uh, a particular restaurant some, some ways from here, okay? Uh, I, I, so you don't know where we went to eat. That's important. Um, we went to eat. And next door there was a, a bar, and they were having a croaky contest, uh, which was probably better titled a croaking contest. Um, but we were in there eating dinner, and, and we were listening to this uh, uh, pumped-up croaky contest. And the whole thing, I think, was an exercise, and some of it was an exercise in denial. Um, but there was one lady in particular who was, I think she thought she was a rock star, uh, I no doubt when she was up there singing in front of uh, the 24 people that were there, she pictured a you know metropolitan stadium or something, and the crowds are going crazy, and, and, and you know it's just the way she was you know getting into it is like, you know I, I'm a rock star, and, and she was singing um, you know some song, uh, I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it, I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it, oh yeah I'm you know and we're saying please don't lose control, please don't you know, but it's like. Okay, the reality was is that she could sing about as good as I could, but she thought, I think, in, in her own way, she wished, she wanted to be a rock star. Who doesn't want to be a rock and roll star, you know? But it's painful to the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> that's called denial. People sometimes say stuff like this, I, I, I don't like that belief, uh, and so I don't, I don't think that's true. You, you, you're talking about what is truth. And, and they say, well, you know, gosh, I don't like that thought. I don't think it's true. But those are two very different issues. Who said that what is true should be what you like? Who said that what you like should be what is true? Where's the, where's the connection there? Who gave you the authority to define what is truth on the basis of what you like or not? What seems right to you or not? Two very different issues. Because you want to be a rock star does not mean you're a rock star. Because you want so badly for your family to be a Christian family does not mean that it is a Christian family. But it's possible for a parent, perhaps, to just... Pretend to go into denial to not notice the fact that the kids are balking out, that they got all sorts of issues, but you don't want to see that because you want this to be true. Your marriage is falling apart, but you can't see it straight, you can't say it straight, you can't deal with it straight because you want so badly for this to be a godly marriage. So you keep on telling yourself that, trying to run from reality. It's the very definition of neurosis and sickness and sin. And so also people try to run from the consequences of their behavior, trying to outsmart the law of cause and effect. You know that your sexual behavior could very, very likely give you AIDS. But hey, you know, that happens to other people. That's not going to happen to me. And besides, I usually use a condom, you know. And, and we give ourselves this false security and keep going on and on and on. And no one ever believes it's really going to happen to them. 
trying to outsmart reality, but reality always has a way of winning. One guy I knew had gotten involved in an adulterous affair, and, and, and he had, uh, was actually with his boss and had gone on for several years, and he was a deacon in a church, and he got caught, and he lost his family. He obviously lost his position in the church, but he also lost his job. It was catastrophic for him. And among the many things I wanted to talk to him about was this. Didn't you think, and especially some of the things they did, it was like, in, man, he, didn't you think about this back then? Didn't you anticipate this back then? And his response was, I never thought I'd get caught. I, I, I know that, yeah, people get caught all the time, but I didn't think it would happen to me. It just never really occurred to me, it never really occurred to me that this could happen to me. Trying to outrun the consequences of cause and effect, but the fact of the matter is that reality always catches up. And so it is here. The author of Hebrews is saying this. If they couldn't outrun the consequences in the Old Testament where God gave a message through angels, do you think you're going to outrun the consequences if you neglect so great a salvation, something that is this marvelous, something that God did to this extreme to save you from, if you neglect this, if you just poo-hoo it, if you walk out on that, if you just make it a, a little footnote to your life, don't you think there's going to be consequences to it, negative consequences to it? So pay attention, the author is saying. Wake up to this. Become disciplined in your spiritual life. Invest your life with this. Grab hold of that first passion that you had. Surround yourself with believers to keep on walking the straight and narrow. The Bible says it's a straight and narrow way, and the reason is because it's straight and narrow. It's far easier to veer to the right and far easier to veer to the left than it is to stay on the path. But the Bible calls us to stay on that path and to hold tight to it and to heed the warnings about what else is out there. And maybe you hear this as being sort of a harsh message. Like, man... I like the angel stuff better, you know, tell another Monica story or something, you know. But that's, again, part of our culture. I don't think this is true because I don't like it. But you know what? God, people say, well, gosh, I thought you believed in grace. This is as gracious as it gets. Praise God. This is God's grace. This is God's love. The question is not, does this make you feel a little bit better today than yesterday? The question is, is it true? If you're in, in a house and your house is on fire, I am no friend of yours if I go up there and try to make you feel more comfortable in your house so you can keep on watching your favorite TV show. It, it may strike you as mean that I tell you to turn off your TV show and to run outside, but if I love you, if I care about you, if I'm invested in your life, then I'm going to go up there and I'm going to grab you by the collar and if I have to, I'm going to, bear, I'm going to be a real meanie and drag you downstairs and drag you out of that house because the reality is the house is on fire and so it is with us. This author is being gracious and kind and wonderful and true by warning us of this because it is true. The Lord is saying to us this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer here, the Lord is in your face not to be mean but because God is passionately in love with you. And it's saying, for every action, there is a reaction. For every cause, there is an effect. You can, this morning, set in motion a consequence that will bear eternal fruit, eternal salvation, eternal life with God. And it happens just by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God is pulling you forward here this morning to do just that. At the same time, not to scare you or anything, but simply because it's true, the Lord is saying... If you're going to neglect this and walk out on this, there are consequences for that too. Hellish consequences for that. 
And I'm not saying that if you walk out of here a non-believer, that you're going to go to hell, that you never have another chance. But I am saying there's always consequences for our action. This morning the Lord would say, today is the day of salvation. Come forward, there'll be people here who would love to pray for you and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's nothing that's easier to do, but there's nothing that bears longer, long-term consequences for the positive than doing just that. Become saved and join the army this morning. And for believer, the Lord is confronting us and confronting me, you see, and saying this. Look at honestly, very honestly, where you are this morning. Maybe even have a brother or sister in Christ tell you where you are this morning. And now compare that to where you were a year ago. And ask yourself the question, what direction are you going? Has your time with the Lord dwindled down to a five-minute little nod? Are you just going to the celebration service together here out of, out of habit? Are you as passionate in worship here and at home as you used to be? Is the fire still there? Do you have a burden for the lost the way you used to have it? And this isn't about you ought to do better, do got to do, impress the Lord kind of a thing. I'm not talking like that at all. I'm just talking reality here. Is the marriage alive? Because the Lord is saying, I love you too much to let this thing dwindle down to a second-rate thing. Let the Lord, the Holy Spirit, confront us this morning. Maybe grab us by the jaw. Maybe some of us need a little wake-up shot here, a little kick in the spiritual hind end. to Say, come on, let's get back on track. To return to our first love, our first passion, and to give Him our all. I'm going to pray, and afterwards, I want you to know the front of the auditorium is open here. If you want to come forward for a reconsecration, I want to do that. As we're dismissed, can I ask the worship team to come up here and just sing that song as we're going to be dismissed? And that'll be kind of an invitation to come forward. If you're here this morning, and, 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 and uh, you're a believer, I, I just want you to know that you can come forward here and reconsecrate your life to the Lord, or give your heart to the Lord for the first time if you're a non-believer. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us enough to speak the truth to us. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us so great a salvation. Thank you, Lord God, for the warnings of your word that are there to be used by the Spirit to graciously keep us in line. We pray, Lord God, this morning that for any non-believer that is here, Father in heaven, graciously draw them forward. I pray, Lord God, that they would surrender their life to you and become part of your family and be destined for an eternal life with you. God, bring conviction if need be right now. And Lord, for the rest of us, we just pray that your spirit would be continually drawing us back to our first love, our first commitment, making you the first priority of our life, Lord God. Lord God, as we go out of here, God, given us a spirit of discipline to resist the pattern of this world, the pollution of the air that the enemy would use to turn us ever so subtly around. And Lord God, for those who are here this morning and are alone, I pray, Lord, that you'd motivate them to get plugged into other people groups to surround themselves with believers who care enough to be mirrors in their face and, and, and to be accountable to them. Just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.